turn with me in your Bibles to, I want to go back to 2 Kings where I was a little earlier. And I'm going to invite you to go to chapter 6. Verse 26. Actually, verse 24. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24. And it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, he gathered all of his army and he went up and he besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and a fourth of a cab of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. Now here you've got a story in the Bible of this terrible famine the Assyrian army had surrounded the people of Israel. And the idea in Bible times, if you wanted to overcome your enemy, you would surround them so that you'd besiege them. Surround them so no food can get in, nobody can get out, and they're basically starved to the point where they can't fight. And uh, pretty soon they surrender. Now, you know, you look in Bible history and there were some interesting sieges. Um, Herodotus, the historian, said that ancient Babylon was built in a way that it could withstand a siege of 20 years. They had food stored in the city in silos and grain. I don't, he used to exaggerate, so I'm not sure that's true, but I don't question that they could withstand a siege of at least uh, a few years. The Jewish rebels at Masada, I've been there, they held off the Roman army just with the food stores and the water stores they had up on this mesa, this desert mesa, for three years. And they never did run out of food. Matter of fact, they used to aggravate the Roman army as they were building this ramp so they could attack Masada. They'd throw water and food over the walls to say, hey, we got all we want. <laughs> Try and discourage them. When Nebuchadnezzar did attack Jerusalem, it was after a siege of two years. Some of these Bible sieges, conditions inside the city would become just appalling. And uh, God had said to Moses that if your people neglect the truth and don't obey my commandments, your enemies will besiege you until you eat the children that come from you. And I'm not going to read it, but if you keep reading in this chapter, not only were they eating donkey heads and dove droppings, they started to eat each other, which is, uh, is pretty desperate. Can't fight when you're weak. So the devil's strategy is starve them till they surrender. What is food for the Christian? Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Um, you are what you eat. You ever heard someone say that? And uh, <laughs> uh, John Lomacain and I were doing an evangelistic meeting one time and we were teasing each other, and, and uh, he told me that I looked like a convertible because I had no hair. And I said, to, I said, you look like, he has big ears, so I said, you look like a car with the doors left open. <laughs> and he, he said, uh, if you are what you eat, Doug, you're a, a melon. And I said, you're a zucchini. <laughs> we've gone back and forth like that. But I'm not talking about that. I, I don't worry about that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm worried more about the spiritual diet that people are eating. 
if the truth is known, the average, average Seventh-day Adventist Christian spends a lot more time watching secular media and listening to worldly music, uh, even in a casual way, and it undermines our faith. And we think that, we say, hey, well, look, I spent 20 minutes reading my Bible this morning. I spent 10 or 15 minutes in prayer. That's so much more than most people do. And I'd say, well, bless your heart, that's good. Please don't stop. But compared with everything else you're eating, it's diluted. For instance, if you say, you know what? I've got a diet. I eat whole wheat bread. And uh, I have, uh, you know, I drink carrot juice. And, and I'm a, a vegan. And, uh, and you, you say those things and you say, well, but, you know, I do also go to the smorgasbord and I kind of, I, I, I pork out on the hamburger and the, uh, the pizza. And what, eating a few healthy things is not going to compensate. Uh, or eating, taking a few vitamins is not going to offset an atrocious diet. You see what I'm getting at? Having a little bit of Bible study is not going to reverse the effects of feeding on the media of the world. And I say this because I'm worried about it in my own life. I see it in the lives of our church members. I see it all over the world, wherever I go. I mean, our church, it doesn't matter where I've been. It could be in India. It could be in Russia. Could, they're watching American movies with subtitles. And it's just, it's permeating the culture. It affects the morals. You know what really scared me? Now, I grew up in the world. I mean, there's almost nothing you could say or tell me about that I'm not aware of. I mean, I just grew up totally entrenched, saturated with the world. And so I'm trying to... I'm trying to wring that stuff out of myself as the years go by and displace it with good things. But I got into a rental car in Palm Springs, I don't know, a month or so ago. Well, not even earlier this month. And first you get in the car and, you know, you turn it on and I'm trying to get organized. I'm looking for a map and I, you're going up to the drive-out teller, you know, and you're giving them your credit card so that... Uh, you could get your, I, I, I get my car and then I give them my card at the window because I drive so much I got this membership thing. And um, then I'm trying to figure out where I'm going and I'm adjusting the mirrors. You know, you get in a car and I always have to lower the mirrors and, so I can see out of them and raise the seat. And you're trying, you get, you know, every car is a little different. I remember one time I was renting cars and they had these, car dealer was renting these Priuses. I thought, well, I've heard about those. I have never driven one of those before. And I got in the car, and first of all, I couldn't figure out how to start it. Because I guess you start like a computer, you boot it. And then the screen lit up with all these diagnostic things. And I stared at that for a few minutes, and I got out of the car. <laughs> I said, I'm going to get killed trying to drive this thing and figure out how to run it. I haven't got time to learn how to drive this thing. So I got in this car in Palm Springs. I was already five minutes in the car, and I'm driving down the road before I realized the whole time I'd been in the car, there was this rap station on the radio that was on and playing this absolutely diabolical music. And I was oblivious to it. And I thought to myself, oh, Lord, what is happening to me? You know, you hear it everywhere you go. Sometimes I answer the phone and I'm making this very spiritual conversation. But I'm in some restaurant where they're just playing some kind of abominable music. And you get so used to it that you wonder, what's it doing to me? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And it just so permeates our culture that it, all, it can almost become second nature. Yeah. I remember one time Joe Cruz, the founder of Amazing Facts, was telling this story about he went to visit some church members in Australia. 
And the pastor said, yeah, well, let's go take a visit to the beach. And the pastor takes Joe out to the beach, and, and Joe's there, and, and uh, you know, he's, he's got his short sleeve white shirt and his pants and his tennis shoes. And there's people sunbathing in the nude out on the beach, and the pastor's walking along, and Joe's just red in the face. He's going, you don't see a problem? So why did you bring me here? I said, oh, you know, this is around. This is Australia. Don't worry about it, you know, or wherever it was. And he just thought, they just got so used to it, they didn't even think about it. And I wonder if that's happening to us. You know, we're so used to being fed, little by little, the morals and the values. An example in California, 2000, they had a ballot on the, on the books um, to, to define that marriage is just between a man and a woman. First of all, I think it's absolutely disgraceful that you would have to vote on something that in America should be one of those self-evident truths. It's, you know, it says we hold certain things to be self-evident. It is self-evident marriage should be between a man and a woman. I won't go down that road. But first time that vote came up in 2000, I forget, it was like 64% of California. Does that sound right? Voted in favor of this uh, initiative that marriage, gay marriage was banned, marriage is between a man and a woman. Well, there was a, a big uproar about that. The Supreme Court in California, four judges, without really asking anybody's permission, threw out the vote of millions of people in California and said they, they thought that was unconstitutional. So Californians got together again. They said, let's make a constitutional amendment. You can't throw that out. The marriage is between a man and a woman. We see what's happening in other places. We don't want to go there, at least most people. But this time, it was only like 52%. And that's between 2000 and 2008. Heaven forbid, and you know what? When the gays got on the news and the pundits were evaluating what had happened, they said, hey, look at what direction it's going. We're going to win this battle. It's just a matter of time. They said, we got them. You know why? Because when you see the TV programming and the movies that come out and all the little, the, the news and the media, little by little, people's values are being bombarded to accept something the Bible calls an abomination as normal and that it should just be accepted. You know, I believe we should love people from all different persuasions. I'm a pastor. We welcome and invite people from all different backgrounds, people struggling with all kinds of sin. I hope they come to our church. But that doesn't mean that you've got to endorse and accept it as right. And that's what's happening, though. The values. Now, that's just an example that's pretty obvious, I hope, for everyone here. But what about the other areas? about what's right and wrong, morally. And heterosexuals, I mean, if you go by what they say on the news and television, sex is like shaking hands. Isn't that right? And we, it becomes so prevalent, do we really think we're immune to that? So what do you do? You've got to watch what you eat. You've got to guard the avenues of your soul. And I think that it, it would be really good if we can't control our televisions and what you're watching, turn it off, throw it away, unplug it, disconnect, cancel service. What profit is it if you have a little bit of entertainment that's usually senseless? Oh, but I gotta keep up on the news. Well, that's nice. But if the news becomes a gateway to all the other stuff that's destroying your spiritual life, you can do without the news. You'll pick it up, don't worry about it. Just get it on the internet, log on to Fox News or something, get the headlines and then log off. You'll know what's going on. But I think the television 
is destroying the, the fiber and vitality of the church. Amen. And um, that's one of my big concerns. And so the devil is starving us into surrender. Not only are we not eating the right thing, we're eating donkey heads and dove droppings. That's what was happening in Israel. You get hungry enough, and you'll eat anything. Matter of fact, they got so hungry, they ate each other. Which brings me to another point. Paul talks about, uh, well, I, I went to uh, a lot of churches doing evangelistic meetings. And it isn't long before I'm in a new church, and I come in as a totally neutral party, and I find out that church is divided over some issue. And you take your pick. There's all kinds of issues. I could give you some you've never heard of. Uh, some are very important, and some are as trivial as the color of the carpet. I know churches that have been split over a decorating committee. Very severe, very deep, very painful. Yeah, really. And, uh, or the nominating committee. Boy, you know, that, that throws a lot of churches. It seems like they need new sanctification once a year when someone's taken out of a position they think they own and someone else is put in, and oh, there's, there's a lot of hurt feelings. And then you come into that church and you start doing an evangelistic meeting. And when I first get there, they're all fighting with each other. And Paul puts it this way. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, that's right, there are a lot of cannibal vegetarians in the Seventh-day Adventist church. If you bite and devour one another, and people fighting. You know, what had to happen among the disciples before God could pour out his spirit? They put aside their differences. They humbled themselves before the Lord. They reconciled with each other. Then he could pour out the Spirit. And we need the same thing to happen. You start doing an evangelistic meeting in these churches that are divided, and they see new people coming in. And all of a sudden, it's like the priorities get readjusted. And they say, oh, this is really why we exist. We forgot. We thought it was because of the decorating of the kitchen or you know, whatever it is that they're fighting about. And preaching of the Word... You start feeding them again. Do you know, if sheep get hungry enough, they will gnaw on the wool of other sheep. It's true. And that still happens in churches, too. But if you feed the sheep, and they're healthy, um, then they thrive. By the way, if your church is having financial problems, feed the sheep. And then you can fleece them more often. Isn't that right? They get more wool. <laughs> I just wondered if you were listening. <laughs> so there was a famine in the land, and the people were starving. Now I want to jump ahead to chapter 7. You got your Bibles? Go to verse 3, chapter 7. Now, the first part of the point I wanted to make is that we need to feed on the Word. The devil's trying to starve us into surrender. Trying to starve us to where we don't have the power to fight and get the victory. Feed on the word. What did Jesus use to fight the devil? It is written, it is written, it is written. Do you think that that's because he was the son of God or did he spend time reading the word just like you and me? Christ never used any supernatural power to get the victory that's not available to you and me. He read the Bible. He memorized the scriptures. It says he was in the synagogue every Sabbath. He stood up to read the scriptures. Jesus knew the Bible from reading it just like you can so when the devil came to tempt him, he had committed these things to memory. The Holy Spirit brought it back to his mind the same way he will for you. And he used the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to fight temptation. If you want victory, you need to have the Word of God. Otherwise, the devil's going to starve us into surrender. 
Now go to chapter 7, verse 3. Same story, same famine. The people in the city are starving, but there's four men outside the city that are worse off. Now there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why do we sit here till we die? If we say we're going to enter the city, the famines in the city will die there. If we sit here, we'll die also. Now therefore come and let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we'll live, and if they kill us, we'll but die. You got the picture? Used to be a big leper colony. They've all died off except four. Can you imagine what they look like? I mean, they must have been pretty pitiful. People in the city, their friends and family that are in Samaria, they're eating each other. They're starving to death. I mean, it's just terrible, the conditions in the city. These guys aren't allowed in the city because they're unclean. They're lepers. They can't go away from the city because there's this big embankment all the way around. The Assyrian army has been camped out there for months, maybe over a year, with all of their possessions. They can't get out. They can't get in. Talk about being between a rock and a hard place, and they're starving. I don't even know how they lived that long. They might have been eating wild dogs and weeds or who knows. Don't want to think about it. And so they said, you know, if we don't do anything, we're going to die. If we go in the city, they're starving. Why stay here and die like everyone else in the leper colony? Let's go to the Syrians and surrender. Maybe they'll have pity on us and give us something to eat. They're not worried about the political fallout. They're just dying. They just want food. And so they go to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, and they're shocked. Because the closer they get, they don't see any signs of humans that's there. It says in the Bible that God had worked a miracle in their behalf. They rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians, and when they came to the outskirts of the camp, I'm in verse 5, 2 Kings 7, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses and the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Proverbs 28 verse 1 says, The wicked flee when nobody pursues. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight, and they left the camp intact as... It was their tents, their horses, and their donkeys. They didn't even mount and saddle their beasts. They ran and left all their animals. They just absolutely dropped what they were doing and ran for their lives. I don't know what happened. They looked off in the horizon. They weren't expecting a battle. They knew Israel was ready to surrender. They were waiting for the white flag. They were very relaxed and confident in victory. And all of a sudden on the horizon, the Syrian army saw this cloud of dust and they heard thunder and they thought it was an approaching army from Egypt. And they thought, oh, we're not ready for battle. They panicked and they ran. And they kept running. They went all the way to Jordan. That's what it says. So these lepers come to the camp. Now, they are getting ready to experience great abundance. They're getting ready to hear a great message. What happened before they got the abundance and the message of hope? They came to the place where they were ready to die. They said, if they kill us, we'll die. We're going to die if we do nothing. Let's surrender. You know, I think that's a good message for us today. If you really want to have a full life, you've got to come to the place where you say, Lord, I, if I don't do something, I know which direction my life is going. You're just, sin will make you self-destruct. You, like Judas, will hang yourself or you'll fall on your sword like Saul. You'll grieve away the Spirit. If you keep at it, you know what's going to happen. You're going to starve. You're going to die. So, they said, arise and let us surrender. We need to come to the place of surrender.
they come to the outskirts of the camp, they're hoping for some crumbs. They're starving. Can you imagine what these guys look like? Revelation describes them in chapter 3. They probably look like they were poor and wretched and miserable and blind and naked. They're wearing rags. They're covered with sores. They're lepers. And these are the ones that God gives the message to. Isn't it interesting how God doesn't always use the wise and the noble, but he uses the simple means? He uses fishermen and prostitutes and tax collectors. There's hope for us, right? Sorry, maybe you didn't include yourself in that group. I did myself. <laughs> so they come to the outskirts of the camp, and they go into one tent, and look, hoping for some crumbs. It says, they went in, and they found, they ate, and they drank. I'm in verse 8. They carried from it silver and gold and clothing, and they went and hid them. They came back, and they entered another tent, and they carried some from there, and they went and hid it. Then they said to one another, we're not doing what is right. This is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now therefore come that we may go and tell the king's household. Through the night, can you imagine these lepers on their skinny legs? They just, they, they got these, first of all, their bellies are probably swollen because they gorged in the tent. They're expecting some crumbs and they're full. They, they load up all this silver and gold and clothing to replace their rags and riches to replace their poverty. I mean, they've just found incredible abundance. And they go up to the city walls and they're thinking, look, we don't know where the Assyrians have gone. The war may not be over yet. They dig a big hole and they bury it and they find some old tomb and they stuff this stuff in there and they go back for more. And they come back and they hide it. And they go back for more, like pack rats, through the night. They say, we don't know how long this is going to last. We better store up. Like some of you during this financial crisis, right? Better, better hide some stuff. <laughs> Karen and I went to the market and we got a plastic garbage can and um, put some beans and rice in it. I said, dear, you don't know. I said, we need to have at least enough food where we can get up to the hills, <laughs> something to hold us over. That's not going to save us. So all through the night, they're hiding this stuff. You're laughing because you, some of you did it too, right? You're just, <laughs> you're, just, you're just like Mormons. You went to Costco and you got a five-gallon bucket full of gabonzo beans or something up and this is one of the best verses in the Old Testament. One of them comes to his senses. I love this. We're not doing what is right. This is 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 9. This is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait till the morning light, some mischief, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come that we may go and tell the king's household. I love that verse. This is a day of good news. Seventh-day Adventist Church has discovered a treasure of truth. There's no church, I've never understood why Seventh-day Adventists are not more excited about sharing the message. Because I was out in the world where I had no idea. I used to go to Catholic school. I grew up, you know, just hearing all kinds of bizarre things and New Age stuff. And when I finally accepted Christ and then ran into the confusion of Babylon in the churches, I just said, Lord, show me the truth. And someone gave me the great controversy and I said, Eureka. I said, this is it. And it wasn't a fad because that's been 30 years ago. I said, this is it. This is the truth. And the more I read the Bible, I mean, the only reason I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, it's no loyalty based on my family or heritage or anything like that. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist because that's the only place I can go and be a Bible Christian. 
This is the truth. It makes sense. It's a message of hope. It's a message that will help and heal people now in this life. It gives them eternal life. It's treasure. They were hoping for some crumbs and they, they had an abundance of food, an abundance of drink. They had clothes for their rags. They had the silver of salvation and the gold of the gospel and here they're burying it. And you know, I think Seventh-day Adventists have been burying it. And you know what? It hurts us when we do it. That's why one of these lepers said, oh, by the way, you want to hear a little, um, some of the scholars believe that this one of these lepers was Gehazi. The ser uh, Jewish tradition says one of these lepers was Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, who ended up with leprosy because of his greed. And during that night, while he's burying everything, all of a sudden his conscience smote him. And he said, you know, here I am again, hoarding. Everybody in the city starving. You know the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? We always argue about that, thinking about the state of the dead. It has nothing to do with hell or the state of the dead. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the Jewish nation that had the truth, that was feasting on it while all the Gentiles around them were starving for the crumbs that fell from their table, and all the comfort they got was from the dogs. Remember that Gentile woman came to Jesus and healed my daughter. He said, I shouldn't give the children's food to the dogs. That was the Gentiles. And they, she said, even the children get, the, the puppies get the crumbs that fall from the children's tables. And that's the truth. And in the judgment, the rich man who had the doctrinal accuracy, who had the message, he's in torment. And Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. So being raised in the church does not save you. If you are hoarding the truth to yourself and you're not sharing it with those all around us, we're surrounded by people starving for the truth. You know, it's a privilege to be connected with Amazing Facts because we get the mail every day. We get the mail from people out there and they say, where have you been? I've been going to church all my life and I've never heard an understanding of Scripture like you folks have. How come we never, why don't you get this out there? Why aren't you telling anybody? And it's just, it's amazing to me. There's so many people out there that are starving for what we have. Today's a day of good news, but we hold our peace. Good news is gospel. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. That morning light is the resurrection morning. It's like the sign in front of the Baptist church. It said, repent now and avoid the rush. Because everybody will repent then. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. And then I like the way this is worded. It says, come now that we may go and tell the king's household. I love that wording. Now let us come. When? Now. Come to Christ that you can go. You remember if you were here this morning, I started out saying there's two great initiatives in life, two great principles, a great invitation. Jesus says, come unto me. We come to him. This relationship. And then great invitation, Matthew 28. We go for him. You come to him and then you go for him. And I think that this is really what GYC is all about. We come to the Lord. And we say, you know, this is good news. And we've got to tell the king's household. Because Christ, our king, has got people all through uh, this city, this country, this world that are starving for the crumbs that fall from our table. Someone said that evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where the bread is. And that's what God did. He used these poor, starving lepers to share that good news. And in closing, you know, I just thought it would be appropriate for us to ask and for us to pray that God will help us to recognize uh, the privilege, the treasure that we've got in the, the Seventh-day Adventist message. Don't ever be ashamed to be a Seventh-day Adventist. Don't ever be embarrassed. 
you're going to be under attack. People are going to call you a cult. What do you think they called Jesus? They said he had a devil, right? They said he was a Samaritan. They said all kinds of things. They're going to say, the devil's just doing his job. Don't blame him. I mean, if you were the devil, <laughs> if you were the devil, and there was a church in the world that really had the oracles of truth, that had the message. Seventh-day Adventist church is like modern Israel. God it doesn't mean we're holy. It means our message is holy. Israel had the truth. The people were a mess. See, things haven't changed. But the Seventh-day Adventist church has the truth. And if you were the devil and you knew there was a people in here, the devil's come down with great wrath because he knows time is short and he wants to destroy the seed of the woman. Because we've got the truth. Of course he's going to scandalize us. He's going to say we're a cult. He's going to say all kinds of things. Don't let that discourage you. That ought to just rejoice when you're persecuted for righteousness sake. This is the truth. Bottom line is, can you point to the scriptures and say why you believe what you believe? You be, ought to be able to defend it with a thus saith the Lord. There is no message out there that makes more sense than the Seventh-day Adventist message. There's no message out there that is more biblical than the Seventh-day Adventist message. The problem is some of us have not discovered it yet. When I joined the church, I was amazed how many people have been raised in the church that have never read the Conflict of the Ages series. I was amazed at how many people, before I ever went to, I went over time, I'm sorry. Before I ever went to Seventh-day Adventist church, I had read more about Seventh-day Adventist theology than the average Seventh-day Adventist. I knew more about what they believe when I joined the church than 90% of the people that I was in church with. And here I was, you know, a long-haired, crazy hippie running around the mountains, eating out of a garbage can, naked. I knew more about the truth than the average Seventh-day Adventist that had been 12 years of education in the church about what they believed. And I was amazed. First of all, I wondered, why aren't they more excited? And then I realized why they're not excited. They didn't know what they believed. They just thought that the message is supposed to fire you genetically or something. It's supposed to get you excited through your, by your parents and your heritage. Or, that's not how it works. You've got to do what Ellen White and James White and Joseph Bates and our founding fathers and mothers did. They were in the Word. And they said, this is the truth. And the Holy Spirit animated them to tell the world. That has to happen again to God's people before Jesus comes back. It'd be great if uh, meetings like this could be the catalyst for that happening. Would you like to see that? It'll begin with you're making a commitment and saying, Lord, I want to know you. I want to study your word. I want to come to you and I want to go for you. And if that's your prayer, why don't we kneel together as we close? Loving Lord, in the things that have just been shared, we've talked about some very important and even sensitive principles of truth. Uh, we do see that uh, our, our personal devotions and Bible study is to some extent being diluted with the bombardment of the world's messages. Lord, I pray you'll give us grace and strength to know how to uh, cut off uh, those things, to reduce and to uh, turn away from uh, the worldly messages that are undermining our faith and help us to fortify our minds and to fill our minds with the truth of your word, reading the inspirational material that you've given us. I pray, Lord, that you'll bless uh, each person here right now as the Holy Spirit is speaking to our hearts. If there's something we can do in our homes or in our lives to remove the background noise so we can really hear what the Holy Spirit is saying, 
so we can grow in our relationship with Jesus. If there's anything that is an obstacle to being closer to you, Lord, help us to remove those things. And then I pray that as we recognize the incredible treasure that we have before us, there are just fields full of tents, full of good things, and yet we're surrounded with people who are starving. Help us to see that uh, though we are like those leopards, poor, wretched, miserable, blind, naked beggars, that you've given us the message. Thank you, Lord. We don't deserve it. Help us to be faithful, to take the good news, and to share it with the king's household. Bless the remainder of this convention. Pour out your spirit. I pray we'll just sense that you are in our midst, in our conversation, and the way we conduct ourselves. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.